tonight we're going to be kicking off a new series over the next three weeks. The title of the series is going to be, actually, it's already up there. So yeah, I was going to hold it for a second. I'm not going to tell you why. But the title of the series is Rule, okay? So we all have been made to rule, and we were made to rule with God. But sometimes we humans seek to rule apart from God. And when we do, bad things happen, okay? And we're going to take the next three weeks to look at three notorious rulers who sought to rule the world apart from God. So my first point for our sermon tonight is actually going to be a bit of a trivia question, okay? So it's going to be interactive. I'm going to have Mac play a bit of a song, okay? He's going to play the intro to a song. I think I'll go ahead and give you a hint. It's from the 80s, okay? And, and you're going to try to guess it, okay? So if you can guess the song, just holler it out, and then we'll turn it off and we'll, we'll move on from there. So it, it's, it's my first point is the title of this song. So, Matt, go ahead and hit it. Got it. Okay. How you compete with that, I don't know. I don't know. That's impressive. Okay. So, point number one, everybody wants to rule the world. Okay? Now, I'm not suggesting you go listen to that song or you are, you know, all about that band. You have to clarify these things because sometimes as a pastor, when you mention either a book or an artist, people think that everything they produce is good Christian content. And I can't say that that's the case. But the title of that song is Everybody Wants to Rule the World. My first point in my message tonight, and uh, if you're listening to this later, for copyright reasons, we probably had to cut that out. But the song was Everybody Wants to Rule the World by Tears for Fears. Okay, so first point, everybody wants to rule the world. Your teenager wants to rule. Your toddler wants to rule. Your boss at work wants to rule. And last but not least, you want to rule. I want to rule. We all want to rule. And you may not want to rule the whole world. If you do, we need to set you up an appointment with Dr. Terry <laughs> because that's, that's not a healthy desire. Okay, you need some therapy. So you, don't, you may not want to rule the whole world, but you probably want to rule part of it, okay? That may look like which way the toilet paper comes off of the dispenser, okay? Which is from the top, not from the bottom. Praise God. Man, I knew, I already knew this was a good church. But, but it's been confirmed. Man, you just blessed my heart. Okay, so it may look like that, or it may look like, you know, what color you paint the walls in your house, or how you load the dishwasher, because there is a right way to load the dishwasher. And, you know, it, it may look like how you spend your days off, it may look like how things are ran at work, okay? Everyone has a way that they think things should run 
in the office. Uh, You don't have to be the boss to have an opinion on that. And typically the people who aren't the boss have really good ideas. And you should ask them if you're a boss. But everybody wants to rule, okay? Have you ever, and, and that's not just like reserved for a certain personality type, okay? Now, some personality types have a stronger desire to rule, and I, yeah, I, I see some people who are acknowledging the, the people in their life who have that desire, but I have a, a child who, who has this type of personality, and this child, about a year and a half ago, whenever Abby and I sat down with our family, we have four kids, and we sat down with our family to tell them like, hey, this major change is coming in our life. You know, we're, we're going to be moving to Sherman. We're going to be taking a job there. We're going to be moving. We're going to be coming into a new church. So like, a lot of their world is about to change, okay? The, the city that they've grown up in their entire life is about to change. The church they've grown up in their entire life is about to change. All of these major changes are about to happen. And the first thing that comes out of the mouth of this child, when we tell them we are about to have a massive move in our life, the first thing this child says is, so are you going to be the boss? <laughs> Who, whose boss are you going to be? And I said, well, you know, I will be leading people, yes. So who's going to be your boss? said, well, you know, Pastor Jacob, aka Uncle Jacob. And child's like, hmm, so he's going to be your boss, huh? I said, yeah, yeah. It's good to have accountability in a boss, okay? But some people, their personality bent, it just, they pay more attention to who's in charge. And they have a stronger desire to be in charge. But that desire to be in charge, that desire to rule, is not just limited to just a certain personality type. We all have it. Even if you're the most free-spirited, you know, we don't need any rules kind of person, if you take that person and you put them in a box, they will quickly have an opinion on the fact that they don't want to be in the box anymore, and you better let them out because they need to be a free spirit, okay? So, it's not reserved for just a personality type. It's, it's for everyone. And it's part, the reason why is because ruling is part of our fundamental human assignment. Okay? It's part of our fundamental human assignment. And part of that assignment was with, well, that assignment itself was set within the context of a certain parameter. And that was that we are designed to rule, but we're designed to rule with God. Taking our rule, the, abil- the realm that we have to make decisions, and keeping that under his ultimate rule. And rule with God. But we have this tendency to want to do our own thing. Okay? And this desire to also rule, but to rule apart from God autonomous from him, calling the shots ourselves. And it seems like the people who do this the best, okay, 
the people who uh, are the best usurpers, if you will, the people who do that the best end up getting the biggest positions and the best titles. And we promote them to the highest positions of power. Those who seem to be the best at taking matters into their own hands. And when this happens, what comes out of that is instead of being the priestly kings that we were intended to be, we create tyrant kings. So we're going to be spending the next few weeks looking at examples of these tyrant kings, people who sought to rule apart from God. So the first king that we're going to look at is none other than King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of kings, was one of his titles. King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of kings. He was, by worldly standards, a great king. He had amassed a great deal of power, dominion, and rule. And when you think of tyrant kings, for the ancient Jewish person, King Nebuchadnezzar was the epitome of the tyrant king um, because he was the king who came in and conquered Judah and decimated and destroyed Jerusalem in the year 587-586 BC, totally leveled it. And when he did, he started deporting all of the valuable people, all of the important people, the craftsmen, the metal workers, the wise people. He started taking all of these people out of their homeland and putting them in Babylon, in his area. And Nebuchadnezzar was a great and powerful king. He was a great king, but there's, there's a difference between great and good. Great doesn't always mean good. And there's, there's, a, there's a phrase in the business world that comes from a book uh, that, that good is the enemy of great. Okay? And its concept is you don't want to just settle for okay or good because if you do, then that keeps you from striving for excellence. And so I, I get that, but sometimes we take that beyond its limit. And we see that good is an enemy of great. And so in order to become great in the world's standards, we have to sacrifice goodness. That if you want to get ahead in the world, you cannot be good. Because in order to climb the ladder, you have to make people rungs in that corporate ladder. And so there is a distinction between greatness and goodness. The world has seen its fair share of great leaders, but what the world desires is good leaders. Good kings. Nebuchadnezzar was certainly, uh, <laughs> was certainly not one of those, those good leaders. So he takes these people, deports them, and one of the people that he deported was uh, a man by the name of Daniel. And so that's the book that we're going to be in tonight, is Daniel chapter 2. So you can turn there. I'm going to summarize the first 30 verses. You're welcome. (laughs) So in the first 30 verses of Daniel, how it opens up 
is it opens up with King Nebuchadnezzar having this dream. In this dream is, is terrifying to him uh, it, to the point that he's so troubled that he can't sleep. Okay, we have a term for these kind of dreams. They're called nightmares. Okay, so King Nebuchadnezzar has this nightmare. He has this dream that troubles him so much that he loses sleep over it. And it troubles him to the point that he needs to know the meaning of this dream. And so he goes to his wise counsel and he goes to them and says, hey, I've had this dream, it's troubled me, and so I need to know what it means. And so his wise counsel says, uh, great, just you know, tell us the dream and we'll give you the interpretation. Nebuchadnezzar is like, mm, not so fast. I wasn't born yesterday. You, know, you don't get to my status by being naive. So I'm not going to give you the dream because if I did, you could just make something up. So how about this? How about you not only give me the interpretation, but you give me the dream too. So I need you to tell me the dream and what it means. Oh, and by the way, if you don't, I'm going to tear you limb from limb and I'm just going to destroy your house as well. Which at that point, like... (laughs) If you've been torn limb to limb, I mean, you can go ahead, wreck my house. That's fine. I probably don't care much about it at that point anyway. But So he gives them this threat, and they, they go back, and they, they try to negotiate with him, and he said, listen, my word's final, okay? Do it, or I'm going to kill you. So they go, and they, they talk, and they come back, and they're like, listen, what you've asked is impossible, okay? No one can do what you're asking except for the gods and they're dwelling, like they don't live here in the flesh, okay? So what you're asking is impossible. So Nebuchadnezzar is so filled with fury that he's willing to kill his entire council because they can't give him this dream and its interpretation. And so he issues that decree that they need to, uh, all, all the, the wise men in Babylon need to be torn limb to limb or limb from limb. So one of these wise men is Daniel. And so someone shows up, knocks on Daniel's door and delivers the news. And Daniel tells the, the guy who came there to say like, hey, sorry, like tough luck, don't shoot the messenger but I'm here to tell you, like, we're about to tear you apart. And Daniel says, no, no, wait, hold up. Go ahead, let's, go ahead and schedule me an appointment with the king tomorrow because I'm, I'm going to tell him the dream and its interpretation. So Daniel schedules a meeting to give the dream and its interpretation with the king without having it yet, Okay. I mean, he's probably thinking at this point, I'm going to die either way. Um, So we'll we'll buy us a little bit more time. And so Daniel goes and gets with his his companions, his buddies, his friends. And he says, listen, here's the situation. We got to pray. Okay. So they start praying and the Lord comes through and he gives Daniel not only the dream, but its meaning. 
And so uh, the next day, Daniel goes and meets with the king, and this is where we pick it up. So, uh, Daniel chapter 2, verse 31. You, O king, and behold a great, or you saw, O king, and behold a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, and its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and gold all together were broken into pieces and became like chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So this is the dream that causes the most powerful person on the planet to lose sleep. Like it, it wasn't, it wasn't giant spiders or snakes or the destruction of the world or the loss of someone he loves if he loved anyone other than himself. It wasn't that. It was this dream of this image that gets hit by a stone and then it all falls apart. And this is what causes the greatest king on the earth to be so deeply troubled that he's willing to kill his entire council to find out what it means. So Daniel goes on to now give the interpretation. Verse 37. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and to whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of heaven, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. There is a lot of weird stuff happening in those two verses. Okay? First of all, what in the world is Daniel doing calling Nebuchadnezzar, this evil, tyrant, malevolent king, the king of kings. Has he not read Revelation? <laughs> okay, that's a rhetorical question, I know. But doesn't he know that, that that title is reserved for someone else? But yet he's calling Nebuchadnezzar the king of kings. It's, it's a way of saying, uh, king of kings is a way of saying the greatest of all kings. Much like The Song of Songs is a way of saying the greatest of all songs. Or the Holy of Holies is a way of saying the holiest place of all. Daniel is saying, you, O king, are are the king of kings, the greatest one in all the land. And in this we see that stroking the ego of the proud is not a modern invention. (laughs) It's apparently been around for a while. Have you seen that? Have you witnessed that? Like in in the workplace 
or when you were in school, someone who is stroking the ego of the proud, not out of a a true sense of honoring somebody, but just sheer flattery. Because when you don't stroke the ego of the proud, uh, things, let's just say, oftentimes you don't get the opportunity to make that mistake twice. And Nebuchadnezzar was, uh, King of Kings was one of his titles. He was conditioned to this. He was used to people calling him King of Kings. Or they would, when they would meet him and when they would greet him, they'd say, oh, King, may you live forever. May your kingdom be established forever because you're the greatest. You're the man. You can't do anything wrong. See, there's a term for that. That term, the term for people like that, are called, they're called yes men. Have you heard of this term? Yes men, okay? So a yes man, which can also be a lady, yes men or women or people or whatever, um, it's a term for people who will never tell you no. They'll never give any sort of pushback or hold you accountable at all. Um, They just only pour out the accolades. They only affirm you in all that you do and say that you can do no wrong. And typically, those who are very proud and very powerful will surround themselves with yes men. Because they tell us what we want to hear. But oftentimes what you want to hear is not what you need to hear. See, when we surround ourselves with yes men, it's not healthy for us. It's not good for us. You know, we we see in, we've seen just over the past, I mean, it, it seems like almost every week, but just over the past couple years, this Um, what seems to be like just an onslaught or just a story after story of leaders in the church having significant moral failures. And there is a common thread, not in all of them, but in most of them, and it involves them surrounding themselves with yes men, that when they reach a certain status or a certain level of influence, they can now start choosing who gets to be around them. And if you push back, or if you say no, or if you hold someone lovingly accountable, uh, you don't get the opportunity to do that again. Because the desire is just for, uh, for those who are proud, the desire is just for that ego, that pride to be stroked. And that's not good for us. That's not good for anyone You don't have to be king of an empire. You can just be you and me, wherever we're at. Being surrounded by yes men and never giving people permission to tell us no or never giving people permission to hold us lovingly accountable is not good for us. So we need people in our life who love us, who we trust, and give them that permission lest we become tyrants. 
okay? You may not become the tyrant over an empire, but a culture of yes men creates a culture of tyranny. A tyrant is someone who wants ultimate power. They want to have all the power in the relationship or in, in the workplace, in the office, in the house, or whatever. They want all the power. And tyranny isn't something that's just reserved for, uh, for kings or evil queens or whatever. There can be tyrannical bosses or tyrannical fathers or tyrannical mothers or tyrannical friends in which in the relationship, one person is trying to hold all of the power. And there's a variety of reasons why, why that happens, but it's not, it's not good. So an example would be in parenting, if, uh, side note, I'm only like nine years into this thing, so I, 10, almost 10, but still nine point, like point nine nine, okay? We're just a few days away from a 10-year-old. But, so I'm only 10 years into this thing, so full disclosure, I don't know everything. And even when I'm 20 years into this thing, I'm still not going to know everything. But, but when, it, when it comes to parenting, an example of that would be a parent who treats their 18-year-old the same way they treated them as an 18-month-old. Okay? That would be an example of, a, of tyranny in a parental-child relationship. Because the parent seeks to maintain the same degree of power in the relationship with their legal adult child as they did whenever couldn't even walk yet. Okay? There, whenever you have a, a baby, an infant, you have to, like, you have to be more hands-on. You have to be more direct. You have to hold more of the, the power in the relationship because if you let them do everything they want to do, they're not going to survive. Okay? But as they grow and as they mature, you just give them a little bit at a time. By the principle of, of being faithful with little, you'll be a ruler of much. You, you give a little at a time because there's a bigger goal. There's a bigger objective. The bigger objective is not you holding all the power till the end of time. The bigger objective is you being able to raise this small human being in a way that they become a responsible, mature disciple, okay? And so in order to do that, you have to let them learn. You give them some of that decision-making ability along the way, and you see how they handle it, and that's how you grow. But, so that's an example in parenting. You can look at it in the same realm with work relationships or friend relationships or whatever, but tyrannical leaders do not want to give any power because to give some means that now they don't have it all, okay? And that is, that is not healthy, and that is what we're seeing here with Nebuchadnezzar. The second weird thing from this is the words that follow, which are strange, and I hope they sounded strange to you because Daniel is telling this evil tyrannical king, he's saying that God has given him the kingdom, the power, the dominion, the glory, 
and that he's set him to rule over the children of man and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. What in the world is going on here? Because part of that sounds like the Lord's Prayer or, you know, the, the traditional version of it. And Nebuchadnezzar is anything but Christ-like. And yet Daniel is saying this to him. It's very odd. Uh, would you agree? Okay, I would, I would hope that, that you would see that as strange. But there's something else going on here. So remember, this story is all about an image. Okay, so where else in the Bible do we see an image and God setting up an image and giving them uh, the commission to multiply to fill the earth, to subdue it, to rule over the birds of the air, the beasts of the field. Genesis, Genesis 1. There, let's, let's go to it. Genesis 1, 27 through 28. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on earth. What Daniel is saying here to Nebuchadnezzar, by the way, that when I talk about the fundamental human assignment, that's it. What Daniel is saying to Nebuchadnezzar here is that Nebuchadnezzar has exalted himself to this position in this place of great power, great authority, great dominion, great rule, great glory. And it's led him to believe that he's a God, that he is the ultimate power, the ultimate authority in all the world. And what Daniel's doing here is he's saying, Nebuchadnezzar, You think you're a God, but you're not. You're just an image. You're just an image. And the same things that I just said of you can be said of the people who are under your feet, who are under your thumb, the people who you've torn to pieces, the people who you've conquered and killed. Those same things I can say to them because they too are image bearers. They too have been made by God and given the image of God and set to be blessed and to multiply and be fruitful and fill the earth and subdue it and rule. The same things can be said to them. So you think you're a God, but you're not. You're just an image. Like all of us, we have all been made and given this assignment to rule with God and not apart from him. But we rebelled. The Genesis 3 could probably be more accurately described as a rebellion than as a fall. Because we rebelled against God. We said, you know what? How about we define right and wrong, good and bad, good and evil, on our own terms? Um, How about we rule this place on our own, And we reached out and we seized that 
And when we did, we separated ourselves from God in our pride and our arrogance. We separated ourselves from God. And then from Genesis 3 to 11, it is just this downward spiral where things just keep getting, they go from bad to worse. You know, I, we're all made to rule and that looks different for different people in terms of the scope of that. But at the very base level, regardless of if you have any huge kingdom or empire or whatever, at the very base level, we are all to rule our minds and our body. And in this downward spiral, it gets to the point to where we are incapable of even ruling at the very base level because our hands became full of violence and our minds became full of evil continuously. We were incapable of ruling apart from God even at the most basic level. And it comes, this downward spiral comes to this climax in the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11 where with the creation of this new technology of bricks, we didn't decide to use those bricks to build homes and hospitals. We decided to use those bricks to build a tower that would promote ourselves above God. And what happens, why it's the climax is because now it's this rebellion against God is no longer just isolated to an individual level, but now at a societal level, we are seeking to elevate ourselves above God. You know, the word Babel is in your Bible 261 times. In every other place, it's translated with a different English word, Babylon. So Babel and Babylon were the forerunner for empires and societies that would seek to rule the world apart from God. And that's why Nebuchadnezzar, king of the Babylonian empire, is the head. Because he's the forerunner. Everyone else is just going to follow and step. And so we pick it back up in verse 39, where he's going to go through the rest of the interpretation. It says, Another kingdom inferior to you shall rise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze shall rule over the earth and there will be a fourth kingdom strong as iron because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things and like iron that crushes it shall break and crush all these and you saw the feet and toes were partly of potter's clay and partly of iron it shall be a divided kingdom but some of the firmness of the iron shall be in it just as you saw the iron mixed with the soft clay and as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle As you saw, the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, God will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that the stone was cut from the mountain by no human hand and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. 
Did you notice how as he's going, the quality of the materials in the the image just kept downgrading? It's representative of this downward spiral that occurs when we humans try to seek, or when we seek to rule the world apart from God. This downward spiral just continues to keep happening. And the, the empires that, are, that he goes through are most likely the Medes and the Persians, and then the Greeks, and then the Romans. And here's what's key is that they don't just follow Babylon in when they rule, they follow Babylon in how they rule. They don't just follow Babylon in when they rule, but they follow Babylon in how they rule. And it's just this endless cycle of one empire rising and, an, and another empire coming in, shedding a bunch of blood, and one empire falling just so another one can rise. And this just happens over and over and over. One tyrant king to the next. But it's all the same. Just one tyrant empire after the next, and then we just kind of recycle and we recycle And it's all the same. Medes and Persians, they're just another Babylon. Greeks, they're just another Babylon. Romans, they're just another Babylon. All of it's the same, except for that stone. Something was different with that stone. Because that that stone wasn't part of the image. It wasn't caught up in all that mess. It came from somewhere else. And it it wasn't cut by human hands. So it wasn't man-made because what men can make, they can destroy. There's a, a line from a Wendell Berry poem and he says, praise ignorance for what man has not yet encountered, he has not yet destroyed. This, this kingdom, this stone was not cut by human hands. It came from somewhere else. And Daniel says that that, king, that, that stone is the kingdom of God. And that kingdom of God has a king. And he said this kingdom is coming and the stone is going to shatter into pieces all of these empires that came before it, so much so that they'll just be a faint memory. And Nebuchadnezzar is starting to get the picture. And now you're starting to see why he's so terrified. Because it turns out he may not be the most powerful. Turns out he may not be the greatest. And he has the dream of this stone that then turns into a mountain and fills the entire earth. And this dream to him is a nightmare. The dream of the mountain that fills the earth to the tyrant king is a nightmare. But there's someone else that had the same dream that had a very different response. Isaiah chapter two, verses two through five. The prophet sees a mountain filling the earth and this was his take on it. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. It shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations flow to it. And many people will come in and say, come, 
let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and decide disputes for many people. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. The dream that was a nightmare for the tyrant king was a hope-filled dream for the prophet. There's something interesting. Yeah, I have time. There's something also interesting in this. There's obviously the clear with the, they're, they're going to take their swords and their spears and they're going to beat them down into pruning hooks and gardening tools. There, so there's, there's the obvious, they're not going to learn war anymore. And what, what a beautiful day that will be when nation will no longer have to rise up against nation and no one will have to learn war anymore. Both of those, the swords, the spears, the pruning hooks and the plowshares, both of those two sets are a form of technology, a human creation. In Genesis chapter 11, it was the human creation of bricks that gave way to uh, them now building this tower in defiance to God. And what we see here is there will come a day when humans will step into their fundamental assignment in which they'll be able to rule, they'll be able to subdue, they'll be able to create, and they'll be able to direct their creative thoughts and energy into things that make gardens, not graves. That this day is coming, and this day was a hope for the Jewish people in a dream. And for those who seek to rule the world apart from God, this kingdom that's coming will be like a nightmare. But for those who humble themselves under the lordship of Jesus, this kingdom that's coming will be like a dream come true. What he's saying is, Ned, there's a king coming. And there's nothing you can do to stop them. You can, <laughs> you can run, you can hide, but there's nothing you can do. This kingdom's coming. This king is coming. Revelation chapter 17. Uh, it talks about, it speaks, it's speaking of the kings of the world who follow in the way of Babylon. And it says this about them. Revelation seventeen fourteen. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with him are called and chosen and faithful. The rule of the great Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, who was considered king of kings, began in 605 BC and ended 
in 562 BC, upon his death. The rule of King Jesus was established before the foundations of the earth. And it did not end with his death upon the cross because on the third day, the father raised him from the dead and he ascended to the highest seat in all of the cosmos. And he will reign now and forever because he is king of kings and Lord of lords. And his kingdom is coming regardless of who think, regardless of what tyrant king thinks he or she is in charge, this kingdom's coming. Any empire can rise, any empire can fall, but know this, that this kingdom's coming. This kingdom's coming. This king rules now and forever. So when we look, so a couple of of thoughts here for us in, in closing is, first thing, it's easy to play armchair quarterback and just look at the people who are like the, the, most, uh, the most well-known leaders in the world um, or in your workplace or whatever. It's easy to play armchair quarterback and criticize how they rule. Uh, but what I want us to do is I want us to consider the parts of our life that we rule the parts of our life that we have a say in what happens in our homes and our families and our friendships and ask the question of, am I, because see, one of the subtle things that Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar is he said that God has given them this. He wasn't the one who did it all. He said that God has given you this. So for the, whatever level of influence we have, do we acknowledge the fact that it's given to us by God? And then, do we take whatever that is, our, our rule, do we do that under God? And do we, do we seek him on, on how to, to rule? Or do we seek to do it apart from him? Whether that looks like how we interact with our spouse, um, how we interact with the people that we work with, or our kids, The second question is this. Two people saw the same thing. One's response was fear. One's response was hope. When you look at the future, do you see, does it elicit fear or does it elicit hope? I'm not saying that we take a laissez-faire approach and that we don't do anything about what God has given us responsibility to do. But I am saying, I I would like for all of us, myself included, to consider how we, is is how we think, is how we pray, is how we act. Is all of that coming from, is it coming from a place of fear or is it coming from a place of hope? Because depending on whose perspective you're looking at, if, if it's fearful, then we may be looking through the lens of Neb. If it's hopeful, then we're looking through the lens of Isaiah. Because God is, has set up a kingdom. He's set it up. We don't, we don't build this kingdom because we don't make this kingdom. We don't get to make the rules. What we do is we participate in it. And the invitation 
Jesus extends for all to come and to participate in his kingdom.